Uh, hey, Scott. Yes, Adam? Uh, does this look like a pimple or a boil? Adam, that's your nipple. Coming to you almost live from an abandoned shack in the woods, this is The Unknown Studio. I'm Scott. I'm Adam. And we are your hosts. Today we have Don Iveson, Edmonton City Councilor of Ward 5 in the studio with us. Uh, and we are going to talk about smart growth and urban planning and a whole range of hilarious and interesting things. So thanks for joining us, Don. Oh, it is my sincere pleasure to be in this this odd cabin in the middle of this industrial park in southeast Devon. yes well it is a little creepy it reminds me kind of of the cabin from evil dead an excellent actually. film it was i actually saw the stage musical uh, not too long ago in calgary and it, were you in the section where the blood got on you no we didn't pay the extra to get bled on though those people looked like they had a lot of fun come to city hall next week and you can maybe get blood on <laughs> oh, oh dear yeah actually that maybe that's the jumping off point there's a lot of talk about uh the way Edmonton's developing, and, and there seems to be a, a couple of camps, there are the people who are, are interested in intensification and uh, increasing density in the downtown of the city. And there are some people who think that it's, it's okay to continue with the course we've been on, you know, to, to continue to grow outwards so that people can afford their, their uh, single-family detached residence with the white picket fence. And a lot of that's taken shape around the municipal airport. Uh, so you guys are deciding next week, or? Well, perhaps. We'll see. Um, last week, there were a series of public hearings where uh, more than 80 uh, citizens came out representing various perspectives and interests uh, and different viewpoints on what ought to happen with the airport, ranging from close it, and you should have closed it, you know, 12 years ago after the referendum to people who want it opened back up um, and who would really like to see the international route of business out of hard feelings. So somewhere between those two uh, extremes, everybody lay. And uh, after hearing all of that, as well as some information from city administration, uh, uh, the executive committee, which I sit on, we decided that we weren't going to make a recommendation because we figured there was uh, more discussion yet to happen at council. And that discussion will happen this week on the uh, 8th of July, uh, starting at 1.30, and we'll discuss and ask questions until we're out of steam, and then uh, we'll either send it back for some further analysis or we'll, uh, we'll make a decision at that point. Interesting. I've got a confession to make. I um, really did not actually have the opportunity to prepare at all anything whatsoever for this uh, this particular podcast. So I'm going in very, very blind, and I'm just going to basically throw in my two cents uh, whenever I come up with something to say. So on that note, Adam, do you have anything else to add? Well, I mean, uh, yes, Scott, and thank you for being so organized. That's okay. It's fine. I did a ton <laughs> of reading, and by a ton, I read the first two pages of a document that you posted to Twitter, Don, and underlined some things that I found particularly hilarious. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, as far as the airport is concerned, you posted a blog earlier last week about your leaning towards voting in favor of closing it. Can you explain why that is? Yeah, and I, I am leaning that way right now. I, we have to be careful uh, because we haven't really finished talking about it. Uh, I think it's important for all of us on council to try to keep an open mind. Um, but I'm, I'll say that I'm leaning towards closure, and the reasons why principally are that uh, the airport could be viable, could add a lot to the city if we opened it up to scheduled traffic and uh, cargo and uh, really work to make it a viable airport again. The problem is, and this debate was had in 1995, is that that will undermine the consolidation of air service at the International Airport, which arguably has resulted in better air service for most of us who fly out of the International Airport, whether it's more frequent flights to Saskatoon or whether it's uh, uh, the number of direct flights that we have to uh, international locations and, and the U.S. And, and throughout Canada. And so um, while I take the argument that the municipal airport could be much more than it is, it isn't ever going to be unless we revisit the consolidation question, which would jeopardize, if we went that down that road, it would jeopardize the position of the international airport and the, the growth that's happened there. I, I believe that that's a, a legitimate argument. Okay. And therefore, 
Therefore, that leaves you with, do you let it die slowly as it has been doing since 1995, or do you do something more creative with that land uh, that could center around LRT, which we're pushing up in that direction, uh, which could allow Nate to expand, and they have bold plans uh, to consolidate their campus on some land there if we can come to an arrangement with them. So I think the benefits there really outweigh um, just letting that airport continue to slowly die. Uh, but the main one is that if we can put twenty to 30,000 Edmontonians there rather than on the edge of town, they're going to pay taxes either way. So if they live in a $400,000 house on the edge of town or a $400,000 townhome uh, on, let's call it, Blatchford neighborhood, that's the same amount of revenue for the city. But we know that it is far, far cheaper for the city to provide services and maintain infrastructure uh, in the core versus the edge of town. And we actually lose money every time a house gets built and someone moves into it. Yes, they pay taxes, but they don't pay enough um, to properly maintain the property. Whereas it's the other way around when you have people locating uh, on top of established infrastructure um, and in a more efficient land use. So we're talking about the delivery of services like energy, garbage collection. Is it, Correct me if I'm wrong. So people pay what they pay in property taxes. Well, think about it. Think about it this way. Um, you hear about, the, and there was a silly tweet somebody put up on on Twitter during the the airport debate, and this got roundly rejected. Uh, is that well, crime is higher when you have density. But first of all, one of the things people don't do is prorate for the number of people per square mile. So you may have ten times as many people and five times the crime. And you've actually got a crime rate half as much if you're comparing apples to apples. And um, so if you extrapolate from that, you can understand that it's actually cheaper to police a denser area, not least of which because your, your cops have less road to patrol and uh, there are more eyes on the street because you actually have streets that people bother inhabiting. So uh, inherently, uh, denser places we're not talking about Hong Kong, but we're talking about, say, Toronto versus Edmonton, are uh, cheaper to deliver services in. And some of the really expensive and people-intensive ones that come to mind are, uh, are fire protection, uh, police, uh, waste collection, etc. But look at a little one like uh, uh, sewage. If every house on the block, you know, if the lot is 50 feet wide, that means you have to have 50 feet of pipe for every family that's flushing. If your lots are 25 feet wide because they're all duplexes, then you've got half the pipe per flush. It may have to be a higher diameter, but that's getting into the nitty-gritty of sewer engineering. The point is that when you live in a more compact form, you get more out of your infrastructure and more out of your urban services. That's what this is really about. Okay, so then, and and I should state uh, right off the bat, full disclosure, Don and I are friends. Uh, we used to work together, and I actually helped him a little bit on his campaign to get elected as city councillor. So we share a lot of the same views, no doubt. Um, so that aside, this is uh, a debate also about, I, I would call it freedom, because there are, there are documents out there, and we'll get to this, uh, there's a document the Fraser Institute uh, produced that, that talks about smart growth being coercive, which is a rather crass way of, of, of putting it. Uh, not not inaccurate, certainly, but it talks about how you know automobility is is a good thing and and, and it uh, it generates you know economic value and it's really not all that bad. Edmonton has been a car city forever, and it hasn't been developed to not be a car city. For me, a lot of the stuff that we see going on coming before city council, uh, you know, the municipal airport debate. This is very much about trying to get people to stop driving so much, not because drivers are terrible people, but because it's a terribly inefficient way to get around. I mean, today, I drove to the West End to drop something off, I bought lunch, and then I came here. Um, I don't think that that actually only cost me, you know, 10 bucks for lunch. It cost me using my car, it cost me whatever the amount of maintenance would be on the kilometers I drove. It cost the city for me to use their roads, etc., etc. Your, um, your cost is probably 40 to 60 cents per kilometer when you take depreciation of the vehicle, maintenance, gas, and insurance. And that's not counting the public cost of providing the road. 
so yeah, and most people think about it in terms of how much the gas costs, not realizing that there are all these other costs wired in. So, mm -hmm. um, so I know that right now you and your wife, Sarah, own two vehicles. And I also know that your goal is to get rid of one of them, yours. Yeah. Why? Well, it's... Um, We'll come back to talk about the Fraser Institute because I think they've done the usual thing, which is missed the point by starting with the conclusion and then tried to construct a lousy argument around it that's mostly philosophical but and not evidence-based. But we'll come people, back to that. Some people would argue that the city of Edmonton did that with the municipal airport, right? The 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 cons the consultation. Well, the difference is the municipal airport's actually a political issue. The Fraser Institute masquerades as a as a body of <laughs> academic thought, but they're they're just a political process as well. So. How do you feel about the Fraser Institute? <laughs> <laughs> I think they've done incredible damage to uh, uh, the notion of the public good in this country, and and. Uh, well, let's and come so back to that. For we'll come sure. back to that. Definitely, that's a whole half about, hour. Let's talk about cars first. Yeah, go for it. Um, Edmonton is is a car city, and it will be for generations and probably indefinitely. Every major urban space, at least in the developed world, uh, has a component of automobiles in it. And they're tremendous enablers of labor mobility. Uh, if you expand your definition of automobile to include rubber-tired transit and to include uh, things, you know, trucks that collect your garbage and trucks that deliver goods, I mean, the automobile is a necessary, or the internal combustion engine vehicles are sort of a n not even a necessary evil. They're actually really miraculous things that help our cities do what they couldn't do otherwise. Uh, um, the, the question is, do you go past that initial essential kind of utility of those vehicles, and do you get into... Uh, a kind of indulgent reliance on them. And I think that that's where this city is. And it's it's no fault of our own, like most North American cities who had their big growth spurts after the Second World War. They were built around the car because that was just the thinking at the time. And so we're not alone in this. We're like most other uh, Western North American cities that uh, we grew up around the car. And so if it stands to reason it took two generations to get us into this, it might take us two generations to get out. But um, I don't for a minute accept the fact that our cities have to be as car dependent as they are. And I think, in fact, that they would be more uh, livable and more economically efficient to say nothing of the reduction in greenhouse gases, that there are you know, great benefits to reducing our automobile reliance. Not where we have to use a car, so when you have to go across town for a specialist appointment with a doctor, we'll never build a public transit system that can do that for everyone can get everyone to that one specialist. Those are the one-offs. And those are what private automobiles are for. Those are what taxis are for. Those are what car shares are for. Those are what ride shares are for. Um, so the car will always be with us. The question is, does every household in Edmonton need to have two or three? And the answer is yes right now because our transit isn't that good for, for a lot of people and uh, the land use patterns that we've developed uh, really require that and people have been able to afford to do that because property was so cheap they could afford to spend a whole lot of their income on on vehicles but if you look at cities it's kind of proportionate you you either spend a lot on real estate and not very much on cars like in New York or Toronto uh, or you're at the other end of the spectrum in places like Phoenix where the car is a requirement uh, of owning your house because your house is in the middle of nowhere and Edmonton Falls you know, between them on the spectrum, but as Canadian cities go, we're, we're, we have the dubious distinction of being the most car-dependent place in the country. And so anyway, my wife and I are trying to lead by example, and uh, we are trying to get rid of our second car and make do with the first. And, and one of the things we did is we moved to be closer to the new LRT, and that's just been fantastic, because I can get to work and uh, get a, a lovely five-minute walk, and then I'm, if I catch the train, I'm in City Hall in 11 minutes, mm -hmm. which is fantastic. Do we not match up to, say, a Toronto or a Vancouver or even a Calgary when it comes to bus service and taxi service and LRT? Is, is, that, kind of, is that kind of a failing of the city transportation-wise? No, and I'll tell you why. Because the, the failure to provide, or the inability, let's call it, the inability to provide great transit for everybody is not uh, a cause of car dependence. It's really an effect of the land use pattern. And by land use, I mean literally what the city, as the regulator of 
uh, land will allow people to do in a given uh, part of the city. Um, and whether we say, no, you can't do those things over there, or you can. And um, one of the things, not only are we a very spread out city in terms of the residential side of things, but versus, say, Calgary, where a quarter of the population works downtown, and they're able to populate their C-train with uh, commuters every day going downtown, um, only about 10% of Edmonton's population, and this is increasing, but it's still much, much lower percentage, work in the very core of our city. Uh, a much higher number of Edmontonians work in the industrial parks in the southeast, in the northwest, the northeast, uh, or even out of town in, in uh, the surrounding counties, say in Nisku. So our employment patterns are really decentralized as well. So it's not just where the houses are, it's where people have to get to work. And then when you, um, and because we're more of an industrial town, uh, notwithstanding the government, that's the land use pattern that then drives um, a certain amount of car dependency because especially with industrial parks they're very very low density try to run a bus through there and it's it's worse than running it through kind of the the most bleak suburb that you can imagine in terms of the um, underperformance of the route but even some of those companies are taking it upon themselves to shuttle those people back and forth dell was doing it when they had their call center here from right in the downtown core they would take employees to their call center using buses and i've noticed uh because i've driven into sherwood park a few times there are i don't know if there's strathcona county buses but there are bus stops near the refineries so the services exist they're probably not awesome and it's probably difficult to get from your suburban house to a place where you can catch a bus to take you to that refinery but we're starting i mean i'm hopeful that we're starting to see the seeds being planted for that kind of thing to occur well, lots of employers are showing leadership. The city's got a, uh, an employee um, ETS at work. It's called it's an employee pass program. They partner with employers, and uh, ETS provides a discount if the employer matches the discount, and then uh, they enroll a certain number of employees into it. And um, when they do that, and it's a large employer, uh, they can then liaise with them about when are their shift times and so on and so forth. So rather than just the traditional, if you build it, they will come transit service planning uh, approach, um, this is more of a, an interactive demand-driven approach. Or, or even you say, well, if there's no demand right now, what is missing? And if we'll put that in, do you think that will create demand? Okay, well, if you'll agree to market transit with your employees, then we'll come together. And this is called travel demand management. And actually, the, the UPASS program at the U of A came out of several years of travel demand management work at the university. Um, and so when major employers do this, we do make progress uh, in terms of rather than running a bus every half an hour and there being nobody on it because we don't know where the shift changes are, we get a bus there at the appropriate time. Or, or if that's not going to work either, the employer works to get all of their bodies to a collection point uh, that's maybe another transit center, and then they've got good transit from there. So there's a couple different ways to approach it. Uh, so it's all surmountable. It just requires a lot of cooperation. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about this uh, thing the Fraser Institute released. It was a, a document called uh, <laughs> A Breath of Fresh Air. Hilarious. Um, and it's really to address urban sprawl and smart growth. And their, um, their thesis is that uh, sprawl, because it, let me read you the first paragraph, because it really is really fantastic. <laughs> It says, it has been said that North Americans, quote, don't have any serious problems, so they have to invent them, end quote. Considering that less than 0.5% of Canada's land area has been urbanized, urban sprawl, low-density development at the fringes of urban areas, is one of those invented problems. Now, it, it, you know, theories of urban planning like smart growth get developed around invented problems. That statement in and of itself seems like an absolute absurdity to me. Well, they probably deny climate change, too, because <laughs> because <laughs> we do have a problem. The very nature of, uh, of the cities that we've built not only contribute to huge reliance on the automobile, which in turn uh, causes huge greenhouse gas emissions uh, from all of these communities, um, and then that may not be a problem in North America yet, but it's a problem around the world, and it's going to be a problem if 
uh, the scientists are right, and I tend to think that they are. So, um, so ironically, uh, we may not think we have problems here, but the way we live does have impacts around the world. But it also has impacts in our own community. I mean, leave, leave the environment and climate change alone, and let's just talk about public health for a minute. Uh, there is compelling work um, from all across North America analyzing the links between uh, not only obesity but also negative mental health outcomes related to automobile dependency. The obesity one is easy to figure out. If I can attest never, to that. If you never, if you never walk anywhere because you are given to driving everywhere, um, then you just simply don't get as much exercise as, as um, people who live in an urban setting where they walk even a little bit. Uh, the mental health one has to do with frustration and alienation and, and so on uh, because, you know, a car commute, particularly in rush hour, is not a, not a pleasant thing. And um, there's historical data out there that the travel preferences of the commuter is if, you're, if your commute takes, tw I think it's 22 minutes or less, you're substantially happier. If, and any amount of time longer than that starts to cause real unhappiness with the commute. And um, now, just because it's unpleasant. Is that true for uh, for people riding transit as well as vehicle drivers? Yeah, yep. okay. it's true. It's true no matter how you're getting there. Okay. But if you're if you're going nowhere fast in a in a uh, um, in a traffic jam, it's worse than if you're sitting on a bus and reading because then you're really uh, you happen to be moving while you're doing something much more pleasurable, which is which is reading. Yeah. Uh, for my money. Um, so yeah, and there's more to it than that. Just because, uh, particularly those houses, there was a book called uh, the something like the end of the bowling club. I, and I'm getting the name wrong, but it was essentially that uh, social clubs started to decline. And it was just a generational thing. But people used to go out and they used to be in bowling leagues and they used to uh, do different sorts of things out of their homes. And then at about the same time that everybody started driving to do everything, those things dried up. And somewhere along the line in there, front, uh, front car garages came along as the preferred urban format. And then now it was possible to come and go from your place of work. And if you had heated underground parking at work, you could actually never step out into air that wasn't handled in some way. It sounds ghastly. Well, the point is that you, not only can you not get any fresh air, um, which is mostly an aesthetic thing, but uh, you can manage to get to and from work without having a single conversation with anyone outside of your work or outside of your family because oh. there's no risk of bumping into people. You don't have to deal with the public. So, you you know, you all of these people who live in suburbs who've never met their neighbors, I mean, they wave at them, they're aware of who they are, they may talk to them casually, but the front porch culture is gone because there aren't front porches <laughs> anymore. Yeah. Uh, and, and when you take the bowling clubs out of it too, now all of a sudden you've got this fortress of solitude that you live in. And now the public space, which used to be the front lawn facing onto the street, which was where the kids played hockey, now that's not safe. So now the the, the family's front yard is now in the back of the house, and it's walled off, and it's private yeah. space. And um, that environment is not the one that my wife and I have chosen to live in, because it's it's not appealing to us, but mm -hmm. for a lot of people, that's the ideal that that uh, has been successfully marketed to them. Is that starting to change? I think so, and it's funny because this this conversation about um, choice, and you see it in all of our planning documents. So we have to have housing choice. We have to have housing choice. We couldn't possibly suggest that there are enough single-family homes with front car garages in this town already. Uh, there have to there has to be choice because the market demands that product. And the market has demanded that product overwhelmingly in the city for the last 30 or 40 years, sure. But um, this is missing the point about choice because it's imagining that the choice is uh, for someone living in Edmonton about whether they want to live in this part of Edmonton in this kind of house or that part of Edmonton in this or that kind of house. The choice is global. And I would argue that Edmonton's failure to provide choice for people who want an urban um, style of living I mean it's there but we've approved so little of it that it's incredibly expensive because it's scarce um, and, and the desirable places are so few and far between that we have failed to provide that choice or the market has failed to provide that choice and so I mean Adam and Scott I'm sure you both know dozens and dozens of fantastic talented young Edmontonians who don't live here anymore because 
they left out of maybe frustration or maybe for a job or maybe for school and then they never came back because they're living an urban lifestyle somewhere and some of them have families already and and they're making families work with an urban lifestyle and Edmonton has not appealed to that group of people and they're some of our best and brightest and we're losing them and that would uh, kind of play into the whole uh, the whole Edmonton nickname I would assume in that people tend to go away from Edmonton but not necessarily come back a friend of mine had commented that his or her father had told them that Edmonton was a great place to start out, but it's not where you wanted to end up. You wanted to end up like a Toronto or a Vancouver, even a Calgary, because this was just not the kind of city where where one expected to spend the rest of their lives. And uh, I, I personally, I feel that that's a problem. I think that that is a bad perception for the city because we are... Not just we're, we're not just the regional capital city, and we're living in someone else's shadow because Calgary really is a bigger, better city than Edmonton. But just the, the perception that that Edmonton, which should be a major a major center, is just kind of like almost like a small town in a way. I agree with you, but I also think that there's something uh, I dare say virtuous about Edmonton being not being a small town, but certainly having that that sense because it, despite the fact despite our urban planning failures and i think the three of us maybe can agree that they are not insignificant edmonton is also a bizarre place where you can still find uh, people to meet and things to do and I, this is a comment i hear from people who come here from other places places that maybe are more cosmopolitan than our city that they still find edmontonians very friendly and that it is it's a big city you know i guess it sprawls a bit but uh, it does still feel very much like a small town. And now I don't know if, if you start building up and, and uh, you know, your population grows over a period of 20 years, if you still have that. It probably wouldn't even matter because over a period of 20 years, attitudes slowly change and all that sort of thing. Um, but to your point, Don, I know a lot of people who have left the city, not just because... Well, I mean, because work is elsewhere. Now, why is work elsewhere? That's a problem that needs to be addressed, that can be addressed uh, through urban planning, at least partially. I know you yourself were prepared to leave the city, but you made a decision uh, to stick it out and actually run for council. Yeah, I, I had lived in Toronto for two years for school and work and then came back and then had an opportunity about uh, four years ago to think about moving back out east. And the funny thing is, is that all of that urban appeal of, uh, of let's call it the big city, uh, big city lights, that was really alluring. But um, um, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, we were starting to think about getting organized and growing up and having kids and all of that. And we thought, well, you know, okay, it'd be fun to live in Toronto for five years and do the young urban professional with no kids thing. But then we always knew we'd wind up leaving because we didn't want to raise kids right in the core of Toronto or and and in retrospect that may have been a a, a stigma because I know people who are doing that now and it's fantastic because uh, of the services and the amenities that they have there um, but we thought well is it really the place where we want to raise our kids and that's how we got back to Edmonton because our families are here but also we have some of the best public education in the world in this city and it's really easy to take it for granted um, and that, that goes right through to the to the post-secondary institutions as well, whether it's the, uh, Nate Grant McEwen or, or U of A. Um, you can do all the learning you would ever want in your life here unless you were super specializing in something. I mean, you can, you can learn any discipline just about uh, uh, up to the undergraduate level and most disciplines at the graduate level. I mean, um, but that that's not why we stayed. We... We stayed because uh, real estate at the time was so much cheaper. <laughs> that was a huge reason too, um, and it still is. But um, we made the decision to to stay in Edmonton. But it was with a little proviso that we were going to try to work on some of the things that we didn't like. And at the time, that just meant joining my community league and and undertaking some other volunteerism as an active citizen. I had no idea it was going to lead to city council, but it it did. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> and now you've been drawn in. Yeah, careful what you volunteer for. Now I'm I'm going to um, I'm going to shift gears here simply because I've got you here and I I want to bring this up. Um, 
for those of you not local to the city of Edmonton, uh, the Edmonton Sun recently did a report card on city council, uh, which was an interesting read. The, uh, the report card did not look favorably upon the current city council and uh, had some very, not, uh, not even taking into account their, their poll, which, which they did, but just the editorial board of the, of the paper did their thinking on city council. And uh, Udon got, uh, unsurprisingly, a low grade. So did everyone else. So let's just, uh, let's just put a caveat on that. But they called you dangerous mm-hmm. because of your green leanings. And while I've got you here, I want to ask you about that. What's your, why do you think that they would feel that way? And kind of what's your reaction to them saying something like that? Well, um, three things. The first is go back and read the, the one that Scott McKean did in the journal because I like that that report card a lot better. I, I got a B plus there. Um, and uh, the second thing is my uh, my joking line on this has been is for six adults at the Edmonton Sun to still have their feelings as hurt as they do that I beat Mike Nickel in 2007 is is actually just kind of sad. But, uh, but the third the third thing is um, that is a newspaper that is extraordinarily out of touch. Oh, agreed extraordinarily out of touch with what not just young lefty hippie weirdos from the university think or whatever (laughs) whatever labels they would put on me yeah uh who've never worked a day in their life uh i mean they can dismiss well-meaning intelligent edmontonians all they want whether they're elected or whether they're whether they're citizens but uh, they're absolutely missing the boat when it comes to public acceptance that Climate change is an issue. We may not all agree what we need to do about it, but I think the public is there. And I've canvassed a hell of a lot more people out in Ward 5 two years ago knocking on doors than they ever have. And uh, and I can tell you that the public thinks that this is an issue. The public cares about preserving our river valley, whether it's as for the aesthetics of it or whether it's because they value the biodiversity and the connection with nature. Uh, and so, I, I, I mean, I think... To hassle me about the fact that that I and and the mayor asked me to be the lead on the environment initiative anyway, so uh, I'm just doing my job by uh, being an advocate for uh, for environmental causes within the municipality here. But um, there are all kinds of people at the other end of the spectrum who are very active in the uh, environmental non-governmental organization area and activists who don't think I'm going far enough. So, so somewhere, you're kind of, somewhere in the middle lieth the truth, perhaps. So you're, you're kind, of, uh, kind of damned on both ends. Um, if you had your druthers, if you were mayor and all of the city councillors for a day, and you had all the power. And there are all kinds of reasons why it wouldn't be a good idea to structure <laughs> but a city He's dangerous, though. Scott. <laughs> but if, if, you, if you were the autocrat of the city of Edmonton for a day, what would you do to better the city? What, what in, in your opinion, is something that, that you would love to just be able to just say, no, we're doing this, we're doing this now, let's go? I would... I would double what we invest in transit. Communist! And here's why. Because we spend about... Uh, getting close to $300 million a year now on, uh, uh, no, sorry, we spend a little more than $200 million a year delivering public transit. We recover about $90 million a year in, in fares. Um, that carries about 10 to 12% of the population of the city each day. Um, if we doubled the n- hours of service out there, which would increase the frequency of some of the route, already good buses to five ten minutes which is what people want if they want to be able to just wander out of their condo and hop on one and get to work or get to a hockey game or whatever and not have to use google transit or not have to use a paper schedule um i think that what you would get is one of these tipping point things where transit would not just double the number of uh, it, it would not just double the number of rides taken if you doubled the service you would triple or quadruple it and now of course, it seems ridiculous to suggest that we should. Okay, if you if 
you'd recover more revenue because you'd have more riders on it. But even just to say, well, another hundred million bottom line for transit. So spend two hundred, make another hundred in in fares. But if you think about it, if you could take ten uh, percent of the cars off the road in Edmonton and not the city, you know, take everyone's keys away, but if people had no need of them anymore and over a, over a number of years just stopped replacing them. And so you got to the point where uh, instead of there being about 300,000 personal automobiles in Edmonton, there were only 270,000. At 9,000 to 12,000 bucks a pop, which is again a Statistics Canada average for what they cost, a car is 9,000, a truck or SUV is 12 on average, and that's counting depreciation uh, maintenance, insurance, and gas again. So that's your sort of total cost of, of driving. That's not including parking, incidentally. Um, if you just multiply those numbers together and say, okay, 30,000 cars off the road, say an average of, of 10,000, you're talking about saving Edmontonians $300 million a year. Okay, and they're spending $100 million a year on bus fare now that they weren't spending before. But where are you? You're ahead 100 million bucks because the city's spending a grand total of two, uh, citizens are chipping in half of that, so the city's spending a hundred million in tax dollars, the citizens are spending a hundred million in, in bus fares, and, uh, and guess where the, all that money, with the exception of where we, when we buy the buses from you know, Winnipeg, uh, that money is spent in Edmonton, employing drivers, employing mechanics, uh, versus, and, and that, those are principal costs, are, are labor. Uh, versus when you drive your car, the, the principal beneficiaries of that are in Detroit, fat lot of good it's doing them, uh, and uh, other industries around the world. The economic impact of transit in terms of multiplying your investment in gross domestic product is way higher when you employ bus drivers than when you employ people in car plants in other parts of the world, hmm. insurance agents in other parts of the world, you name it. So. Uh, I think it, a, a bold investment in public transit would save this city an awful lot of money, and it would create a lot of wealth in our community, which would strengthen it. The more you know. Um, what are your thoughts on uh, Daryl Cates wanting to build uh, a new arena and an entertainment facility as it relates to uh, urban development? Well, I have no inside knowledge, but I think that this is going to be after we get through the uh, the airport. I think this will be the next big thing. And um, it's funny you should ask it as a how does it translate in terms of urban development. Excuse me. And um, it's important that you ask it that way because there are two dimensions to this. Mm -hmm. One is, is it a good land use regulation decision for city council to approve somebody putting an arena anywhere say downtown on this block or that block and that's a regulatory decision when we sit as the land use uh, the arbiters of land use and that in my mind is an entirely separate decision mm -hmm. than whether there should be any public dollars in it well that wasn't and my question yes I... yes but i just wanted to clarify that i'm not interested in public dollars going into it but uh i i'm intrigued at the possibility of uh some kind of anchor tenant for some of the vacant lots downtown if someone else wants to pay for it. Yeah. Um, so if it if it fulfills all of the kind of urban design guidelines that we like, so that it's not a big, um, a big slab of uh, four-sided concrete and there's no permeability to it for pedestrians and uh, there's no life on the street and the rest of it, then it's no good. Uh, but if if it brings the street to life, if it draws people in, uh, it could be a very positive thing. Potentially, but we'd have to see the uh, have to see the proposal. Mm -hmm. um, and this kind of ties into something that we want to talk about on the show today, which I we kind of touched on, and we've kind of gone around and and talked in circles as we are wont to do. But um, do you, I've heard a lot of people talk about how there's a lot of activity on especially like White Avenue and away from the downtown, like on weekends when you've got people going out to the bar, nightlife, basically spending their money, that people tend to go away from the downtown. And I know that it's long been talked about um, what can be done to bring more people to the downtown. And so, well, we're on the topic of building an arena downtown. What else is kind of going on in that, in that regard to, to bring more people back to the downtown 
core to help, I suppose you could say, stimulate the economy of the downtown area to get people interested in it again? Well, it depends on your definition of downtown because uh, being a counselor from the south side with half of White Avenue in my ward, my definition of downtown kind of includes White Avenue, frankly, because it's it's part of the core of our city uh, or it's our other downtown or the, the, the old Strathcona uh, Foundation and the, and the White Avenue Business uh, Association. They generally... Oh, sorry, Old Strathcona Business Association. Um, they generally talk about it as being our city's other downtown. So, so I take exception. To, no, I, uh, <laughs> um, and 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 as a by the by, there are more seats I think now on Jasper Avenue in licensed establishments than there are on White Avenue because we've capped White Avenue, so they all went to to Jasper to build more bars. Interesting. And so there there is a uh, um, a huge nightlife there. It's not my cup of tea, but um, oh, but come there on, is one. Don. Oil City Roadhouse? I and see so you there. I, I would say wherever people go, uh, critical mass helps make it safe and helps make it exciting. And so whether there's critical mass at West Ed or whether there's critical mass on White Avenue or whether there's critical mass on Jasper or on 124th or on 118th, um, there critical mass is what makes these hospitality zones work mm-hmm. and what makes them policeable. Um, the worst, worst, worst bars in town, and I can tell you this after a year sitting on the city's quasi-judicial standing committee, which here's the business license appeals, because we, the city started yanking business licenses for some of these joints uh, that were real problems. And the real problem ones were not on White, they weren't on Jasper, despite what you may think. They were the, the one-offs in a, you know, in a strip mall or attached to uh, a mall, and I won't, I won't name names, but... Um, those places that were out on their own where there was no critical mass of, uh, uh, you know, a moving group of patrons, mm-hmm. you know, it was the same usual suspects and, and uh, where it was hard, you know, essentially some of these places you wound up having to sit a police unit on top of them versus having a couple of police units on White Avenue that are able to effectively patrol the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, ditto Jasper. So um, I think having... The point is concentration, which comes with density, which comes with uh, good urban design, et cetera, et cetera. These are all the preconditions of, of places that are attractive to visit, whether it's during the day uh, a la you know, White Avenue on a Saturday afternoon or whether it's uh, Jasper Avenue at one at night. Mm-hmm. It's actually really nice to see... Uh you know, not just uh, bar developments and, and new restaurants opening up downtown, but, uh, you know, I guess you could call it uh, community-based events. The 104th Street uh, Farmer's Market is one that I think is extremely successful, and that might have something to do with the fact that the Farmer's Market on 97th Street uh, that I think used to happen, that indoor one, no longer exists. But, I mean, whatever. I mean, the, the point is you can... <laughs> It's so stupid, but if you build it, they will come. And if you implement regulations capping the amount of bars you have on White Ave, well, guess what? People keen on opening businesses like bars will find another place to do it with a large concentration of people. You get a large concentration of people partaking in commercial exchanges like bars, restaurants, I don't know, hairdressers, convenience stores. Guess what? They might actually like to live close to those things, and that's why... I think you're starting to see people in the core. I lived in, I lived in the core of downtown on 100, 101st Street and 100th Avenue for a year, and I absolutely loved it. Now, uh, crime and, I don't know, vagrancy, obviously issues, and ones that I don't think can just be resolved by throwing money at more police. Uh, we have to be more community-minded about these kinds of things. But downtown Edmonton, I keep telling people who slag the city, this is going to be a very interesting place in five to ten years. Well, and and you mentioned the Alfresco night, but everything that's going on 100 and, uh, 104th Street has just been so exciting from... Because I used to live not too far, just one block off that, and I would walk down 104th every day if I was taking the LRT because I'd walk to Bay Station. And it was it was dark and scary at night, oh, yeah. and there wasn't a place where you could uh, you know even buy a pack of gum. But now with uh, a couple of the towers opening up there, and then the, the Sobeys Urban Fresh on the corner, um, and uh, uh, just the life there in the farmers market on the weekend, uh, I I frankly left just before all of that and and missed it but i go back and visit and it's oh, yeah. real easy for me to do that on the lrt but i think that area in 104th is going to be just just thumping 
uh, in a couple of years, if it isn't already. Yeah. I wish I'd invested in property there. I wish I'd had money to invest in property there. I wish I had money. We all wish we had money. We all wish we had money. Well, yeah, no, I mean, admitting it's the first step, right? Yeah, and then bargaining is next? I I don't know. I don't know. Uh, so just a, uh, we're going to do two things. I'm going to ask you a few more questions about some of the statements in this document from sure. the Fraser Institute because I find them quite funny. And then I want to do something that I just thought of. Okay, first statement from the Fraser document. Um, Low-density development and automobility are not serious threats to the environment. What do you think of that? Well, as we discussed earlier, I mean, the automobile dependency. Now, the one saving grace in all of this is that if we can figure out the electric car and make it work in a northern climate and come up with the electricity with uh, um, with renewable energy, that actually takes a huge thing off the table, which mm-hmm. is the uh, uh, the pollution, which is both the, the greenhouse gases but also the... Uh, the, the sulfur and nitrogen dioxides, which contribute to, to smog and which contribute to asthma. Um, so if you can get to the electric car, that statement is true, um, uh, at least to the extent that actually using the car doesn't cause uh, any uh, direct environmental harm. Producing the car probably still does. Disposing of the car probably still does. Uh, and if that wasn't necessary your life, if it was only convenient for your life, then there's some degree of waste there. Um, But you still have to pour phenomenal energy, uh, like until we can come up with, you know, uh, carbon-free roads, which you can't do because we make them out of concrete, which has a, a ton of material and energy input into it. Yeah, what's the alternative? Grass fields? Well, I mean, the Romans built some wonderful cobblestone roads that have held up pretty nicely, but uh, but they're not smooth. So. There aren't that many Romans around, actually. Anymore. Nor do you see very many cobblestone roads in modern cities. You know, that would actually... Generally, asphalt, or bitumen, as uh, <laughs> I discovered the Australians call it, um, is, is a, you know, it's a hydrocarbon product, and, and it requires a lot of heat and a lot of trucking, and, and you have to do a lot of excavation. So if, you, if you're going to induce extra vehicle traffic, because you're going to say it's fine, and you, and you have to widen some freeways, you have to knock some houses down, uh, you have to kill some biodiversity, uh, you know, in a ravine or something so that everyone can get to work within 22 minutes. Um, then there are still environmental impacts from it and, and, and actually massive uh, uh, public costs associated with maintaining all of that infrastructure. Now, I know the Fraser Institute wants to uh, uh, suggest that we could deal with that with toll roads. And, and to their credit, that's a kind of a full cost recovery uh, approach and and you know, between the lines there, if people knew what it cost them to live with what we think of as convenience, they might think twice. Yeah. But because driving is so incredibly subsidized, first by the fact that you uh, you don't have to pay for the roads directly, uh, and second, uh, it, the, the cost behind it is all sort of convoluted because uh, you don't pay for it up front, you can get all this preferential financing, um, and then the real cost of run, owning the vehicle down the road in terms of maintenance, you don't think about it at the beginning either. So uh, so all those costs are hidden. So if, if you move to a full-cost accounting model, it, it might follow that people would select something, uh, uh, select a different lifestyle. Yeah. So then how do you feel about the statement that smart growth policies are highly coercive? Well, uh, I think this is one of those instances where you know, uh, an advocacy group has defined a term um, very narrowly, and if you define it as narrowly as 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 uh, they have in this in this particular document, then you could argue that they are to a degree coercive. But um, there's a whole package of uh, smart growth is really as much a philosophy <laughs> as it is uh, a series of regulations. Um, and as a philosophy, it emphasizes the value of walkability, the value of uh, proximity to things, uh, the value of public spaces. Um, and you can't say that having public spaces and having good walkability amongst them is coercive, that, 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 that promoting that is coercive, uh, unless you think it's all part of some sort of conspiracy to get people to be neighborly, which I- I'm prepared to admit it is. <laughs> That's about the nicest conspiracy I've ever heard of. Well, you know, the Mr. Rogers conspiracy. The precisely, precisely. <laughs> precisely. 
Do you have any other questions for Don, Scott? I'm interested in your Fast 15, actually. I, I want to know what this is about. Because so you did not tell me about this beforehand. I came up all. with it while we were sitting here. I thought it would be a nice way to cap off the show. So I'm going to ask you 15 questions okay. in uh, this week's uh, edition of the Fast 15. You are allowed to pass on two of them if you feel like you should. Okay. They're not very invasive. There are, however, two wild card questions two wi- at the end. Okay, so number one, your favorite food. Uh, butter, butter chicken. Your favorite color? Red. Mac, PC, or Linux? Macintosh. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Favorite holiday? New Year's. Chinese Fam- New Year's. Ooh, nice. Sarah, are you listening? She probably isn't. Uh, favorite sport? Sailing. Favorite pastime? Reading. Nerd. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, favorite music that you're listening to these days? Uh, I'm a huge nerd. I've been listening to the soundtrack from the new Star Trek movie <laughs> that quite a bit. <laughs> Good. Excellent. Glad <laughs> Good choice. Uh, then favorite movie? Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Nicely done. Favorite movie that you love to hate? A movie that you dislike that everyone else seems to enjoy? That I dislike, but everyone else seems to enjoy. Yes. Oh. Pass. I can't think of it. Favorite movie you hate that you love? Waterworld. <laughs> oh, oh really? nice. <laughs> Waterworld. Oh, boy. Come on. Okay. Proudest moment? Uh, uh, becoming a dad. Least proud moment? Pass. Okay. Here's, <laughs> and then so our first wild card is... Uh, your favorite Star Trek episode? Can it be from any of the series? Sure. Yes. Yes. Oh, I'm gonna go with uh, I'm gonna go with piece of the action from the original series. Nice. Where they go back to the 1920s mob planet. I love that. One. I thought you would have picked Devil in the Dark with the giant pizza monster. That's sad. It's true. That's a good one too. <laughs> well, you wow. just don't know me very well. And so our final wild card question, and the end of the Fast 15. How do you like being a dad? It's really neat. You uh, people say it changes your life, your life, and and it does obviously because you have this bundle of needs hanging about. But uh, it's just neat because I get a little perspective shift and uh, makes it easier actually for me to leave a crazy day at work at work and just come home and focus on family, which I I really value that. All right. That well, was so touching. That was touching. Next show we're gonna go from talking something of substance to talking about something with just total nerd that's stuff totally nerd how we roll at the unknown studio that's true we just go all over the place uh we're gonna have two experts come in to talk about plots in movies versus plots in video games and uh whether or not one has perhaps more merit than the other and you might be surprised by the answers our guest uh once again city councilor for ward for the city of Edmonton, Don Iveson. Don, it's been a pleasure to have you here. And very informative. I wish I could say it was... No, uh, sincerely, it yeah. was fun. I'm sorry that the uh, that we had to do it in a in a, an old shack, but uh, that's just how we roll. Yeah, well, I mean, budgets and whatnot. This sound equipment is so low-end. It gets the job done. It does. Thanks for coming, Don. My pleasure. You've been listening to The Unknown Studio, Episode 2, our guest, Don Iveson. Our topic, Downtown Edmonton, pre-production by Adam Rosenhart, post-production by Scott C. Bourgeois. You can visit us on the web at theunknownstudio.ca. Thanks for listening.